Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. I'm your host, Rabbi Miriam Turlinchamp, and for this week's conversation, three people from the Common Good Collective talked to Reverend Lisa Yeboah about her address to her church in the wake of the most recent presidential election. Lisa starts the conversation by introducing herself and her congregation. So I'm Reverend Lisa Yeboah. Um, I serve as the lead pastor of the Southeast Raleigh Table. We are um, what they call a new faith community in the United Methodist Church. Um, we've been in existence since about 2014, where we started off with about 25 individuals who just felt really deeply committed to having some type of faith expression in Southeast Raleigh. But one of the major things that we yoked ourselves to is that we wanted to have a gracious and a gentle posture in our Southeast Raleigh community, not by any means kind of having a colonial presence, which I feel like could be very easy to do if we didn't recognize our own blind spots. But we wanted to celebrate the goodness, the history, the beauty in Southeast Raleigh, which for those of you who might be familiar with Raleigh, oftentimes when people talk about Southeast Raleigh, they do so based off of what they consider to be Southeast Raleigh's deficits and not Southeast Raleigh's beauty. And so I believe church communities and as a pastor, our role is to be good storytellers, not people who yoke ourselves to myths. And so we wanted to have a faith expression that was going to tell a good story about Raleigh. One of my dear friends and also parishioners at at, um, the Southeast Raleigh table oftentimes says this, if we're going to be for Raleigh, we need to be for all of Raleigh. And so we're not going to make Southeast Raleigh a caveat. That's not the way in which we see ourselves. And it's just been so much fun watching us, yeah, live out life-giving life together as this church community. You talked about the hard, good spiritual work, doing the kind of neighborhood development you're talking about. I want us to talk about that for a minute because, you know, we talk about reducing economic isolation as one of our charters here. We're often thinking about like the specific toolbox that people need to become part of transforming communities from the inside. We're not always keyed into the spirituality that goes along with that. How do y'all work with that in your setting? Here's, here's what I would say about maybe the Southeast Raleigh table in regard to spiritual formation. And, and then what does that look like in regards to how people show up in the world or show up in our particular parish? We tend to talk, when we say parish, we mean like 27610, which is the zip code around where our physical church building is, is located. The Southeast Raleigh table is still predominantly white. I mean, uh, the the folks who actually worship at the Southeast Raleigh table are predominantly white. However, we don't center whiteness. What I mean by that, and and, and this is how I'm going to answer your question, is that the way in which we think about how we invest our money, how we invest in Southeast Raleigh, how we uh, take up space in the marketplace, we also are going to decenter whiteness. And I think that there's oftentimes, so when you talk about the economics or it's helping people to divest themselves from some of the transactional ways that they think about money and investment in our communities, to invest in more communal models, which is a little bit of a a stretch, I would say, for some of the individuals in our church who are uh, who are white, who have very much been like, they have a way of thinking about their money, how they save their money, how they use their money, how they whatever. Yeah, to think differently about like, you know, when we use terms like return on investment. And I, I feel like part of also having a gracious and gentle posture in, in Southeast Raleigh is thinking very differently about 
money and power dynamics. And so that, you know, those who have the most wealth don't necessarily have the most say. And those who may have wealth, but it's not monetary wealth, may come with the, with the most knowledge to help us to, to, to do our work. So that's a very like jagged way of, of maybe answering your question around just helping people think differently about how we use our resources and, and who um, defines how resources are used. Yeah, I think you, you answered the question really well. I mean, I, one of the, the challenges for uh, Christianity, especially white flavors of Christianity, is that we've become so accommodated to the marketplace and, and the language of the marketplace that mm-hmm. has infected our, our religious habits. And so to unlearn that language and to unlearn the practices that go along with that language is really spiritual work. It's the spiritual and the material are not separated from one another. Mm-hmm. The way you're challenging that is so important. I'm going to add this. One of the interesting things about our church community is that we really, really hone this idea of coming from a abundance mindset and not a scarcity mindset. If we understand the way that the American context works, though we might be the richest country in the Western hemisphere, we tend to get people from a scarcity mindset. We never, we always want people to think there's not going to be enough for us. So you can make trillions or billions of dollars and you you still hoard what you have. Because our Southeast Raleigh table, we're always starting from an abundance mindset and not a scarcity mindset. We don't worry about how much revenue we're going to make when we rent out space. So sometimes people get the space for free because we're like, you know what? We're not going to sit and wring our hands around like, well, if we don't, you know, if we don't charge them this, well, how are we going to keep the lights on? Or we just really trust that somehow, some way that we will be taken, will be taken care of. And again, that's so different. It's almost like we, we really do have to practice what we preach. So we don't just put something out there and then actually our, the way, our way of being is opposite of that. If we're like, no, we believe in an abundance mindset. When this pandemic started, we weren't trying to think about how we were going to nickel and dime. It's like, no, we're going to trust we'll be taken care of. And, and because of our posture, it actually compelled people to send us donations just randomly that I, you know, would have never come if every five seconds we were, we were, we were like invoicing folks like, you, you know, we need you to pay us for, for X, Y, and Z. There, there is something very powerful about abundance, like really believing in abundance and overflow because it's so counter-cultural. I mean, the, the way folks went for toilet paper reminds us that we actually don't believe in an abundance in the U.S. We have a lot. We got too much, but we, we are um, held hostage by a scarcity mindset and we don't recognize how our practices belie that. There's a grand puppeteer who causes us to, to be that way. And, and, you know, I talked about in that video, like, are we going to have an empire shaped imagination or a kingdom shaped imagination? And I'm really trying to help people sip out of the cup of kingdom and not out of empire because it will make you miserable. I'm not fighting anybody for toilet paper <laughs> for that. <laughs> My people are too cute for that. We're not going to fight for toilet paper. No, please. And if you do, and if you are going to fight for toilet paper, don't be wearing a Southeast Raleigh table t-shirt while you're doing it. <laughs> Um, I was really struck by your initial answer about not being beholden to myth, but being good storytellers about the local community. Are there stories that you have witnessed in Raleigh that help you to believe in abundance? Joey, that is a question. I live in a neighborhood in Raleigh called College Park, and um, it's a historically Black neighborhood. 
I can hear the bells ringing from St. Augustine's University, which is a historically black college that was, it was first a normal school and then um, it, it's now a four-year university. When I hear the bells ringing, I remind myself that the chapel on St. Augustine's campus was built by the children of former slaves. That's abundance, like it's resistance. When I walk through my neighborhood and I walk down Boyer and I realize that that is the name of, of a, a former president of St. Augustine's, that's abundance. When I talk to my neighbor who has lived on the same corner of Pettigrew and Jones for almost 50 years and is a homeowner, when I know that redlining was happening just five blocks down, that's, a, that's abundance. I think just seeing people live and preserve, preserve stories to me feels comes out of an abundance mindset. It's, it's seeing in real time and wrapped in human flesh that people know that they are enough, even when lawmakers or fitness for self-governance or all of the ways in which empire tries to map, especially black and brown bodies, that people still live and bells still ring and streets are still named. That would be where I feel like I see abundance. I mean, I even think, think about the work that Courtney does in regards to being a really great writer and storyteller helping us to see Raleigh with new eyes, with different eyes, to celebrate Raleigh, to celebrate great Black Raleigh. I think there is, um, there's a store in Raleigh that I love, a little boutique, and they have these candles. And on the candles, there are names of different neighborhoods. And I remember one day being like, but there are no Black neighborhoods on any of these candles. And so when people highlight, whether they put it on t-shirts or they rep hard for Idlewild or Worthdale, or I just, rem- it, to me, that's, that's saying all of Raleigh ma- makes Raleigh beautiful. Yeah, so I think whenever I see like these little moments of resistance, that's to me like where abundance comes from. Kind of in that space of abundance in the stories we tell ourselves, I watched your sermon from the 14th. First of all, that little girl reading Exodus Mm -hmm. was like a sermon into itself. Her Mm -hmm. little, I I, like, I saw the video and then I turned it on and her little voice had like this gravity to it. And Uh it felt, it was like so full of conviction and it was just beautiful in and of itself. Like I was almost crying just watching that (laughs) part. And then you come in and acknowledging this beautiful child's recitation and, and you talk about us longing for normal mm-hmm. and comparing to the Israelites weighing freedom via the wilderness or normality via enslavement. Mm-hmm. It's something that we've been talking about a lot lately, this idea of being the common good on purpose, which means solidarity, which means resistance, which means even if the enslavement that I experience is different than the enslavement that others, that someone else experiences, if they're enslaved, I'm enslaved. If they're oppressed, I'm oppressed. I'd love to hear you just kind of expound on that a little bit, especially in light of, of the little resistances, the little stories that are being told despite a much more restricted narrative. Fannie Lou Hamer, Saint Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, um, we're not, we're not free until all of us are free. And so many of our um, matriarchs and patriarchs reminded us of that, you know, that our liberation is really very much tied and connected to one another. James Baldwin, Saint James Baldwin, Baldwin also had a way of, of talking about our liberation being um, intertwined. Saint Martin Luther King Jr., he also had a way of speaking um, about that. And I think Moses also wanted to help us to know that, like, 
do not pine for the flesh pots in Egypt. You know, sometimes we're just so used to being held hostage that we can, we start to like uh, downsize freedom. There is no life in, in being bound. Um, you know, Courtney, I think one of the things that I would, I would say about my own work as a practitioner in liberation is that again, as a pastor of a church that decenters whiteness, but is still predominantly white though, I think most folks would say we have more, we definitely have more diversity than the average United Methodist church, whether, you know, uh, socioeconomic, uh, race, sexuality, like just in the ways in which we like, we just live and love one another is um, me actually helping folks who occupy white bodies to recognize where they're bound. Because I think sometimes like, and it's not that I'm like, white people need to free free us. That That's not what I'm trying to say. I think it's like hard to fall in love with liberation if you yourself don't even know that you're bound. And so um, a lot of my work is helping people to see how the construct of whiteness actually keeps them bound. How white supremacy, yes, it, it negatively affects me and my life. Every single day I wake up out of the bed. It's like an act of resistance, like to own my personhood. But I also want folks who are white to recognize that when they wake up and they're sipping out of the cup of white supremacy, it actually begins to dehumanize them as well, because you're always having to find slick ways to oppress people. If you start to really wake up to yourself, that becomes oppressive. You're always trying to like, you have to be vigilant in a way that you then live into a myth and not into a story. I think the, the beauty, and this is gonna sound catch 22, the beauty of being a pastor is helping people to see where they're bound. And the beauty of being a pastor is painting a compelling vision for what it looks like to be free. So for me right now in this moment, as we're kind of um, turning the corner from this pandemic, I'm trying to help people to realize what we were doing back in 2019, maybe wasn't it. You know, I'm not trying to go back to the way in which I worked in 2019. Like March 1st, 2020 was not the Mecca. I'd never want us to go through another pandemic. Um, and yet I think the pandemic has been a teacher for some of the things that we, we needed to let go of. When you talk about liberation, I think I think about it in those two ways. One, I'm trying to help people to wake up to the fact that maybe they're bound. And so then when they start to taste what real freedom looks like, they begin to understand Black Lives Matter a little bit better. They begin to understand Stop Asian Hate a little bit better because they can also locate themselves in a particular story of being bound versus like voyeuring it. And then also, too, I think in regard to this pandemic, just realizing like, ooh, let's please not try to use going back to language. Let's say we're moving toward something new. You've been listening to the Common Good Podcast. Instead of reading a poem, we've asked for permission to share Amaya's reading of Exodus 14, verses 10 through 14. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. For the Southeast Raleigh table, the first value is to show up, and the first principle is that race is always on the table. As we return, Reverend Yabo explains where these came from.
with the we show up and then race is always on the table. The we show up um, really comes, I mean, it's very Jesus-y because uh, in John chapter one, it says the word became flesh and blood. And I love Eugene Peterson's version in the message and moved into the neighborhood. It is the core way we understand ourselves as a church community as being incarnational is that we showed up and flesh and blood into the neighborhood. But Jesus's presence was never an oppressive presence. It didn't say we showed up and took over the neighborhood or we showed up and we decided we wanted to fix the neighborhood. Jesus is his very name. Emmanuel is God who was with us, not God who is to us. Yes, we know that God is for us. So I don't want folks trying to do all this transactional stuff. We show up, we go to tailgates at St. Augustine's. Every time the Southeast Raleigh table does something, we typically have a DJ because we want to be with our community. We want to celebrate with our community. And so it's the way in which we understand how we show up in our neighborhood and also to how we show up with each other. When someone is going to have a recital, we're going to be with them at the recital. When someone is going through a divorce or they have the wind kind of knocked out of their sails, what does it look like for us to believe that our witness matters in the same way that Jesus who comes to be to be with us? A lot of times with the Southeast Raleigh table, our church community, we don't create new programs. We just choose to show up at things that are already happening. Let's just be with our community. I don't need to create dancing in the park. There's already dancing in the park. Let's just show up in our community. With the races always on the table, diversity can become a golden calf where folks want to make churches into like the the church version of United Colors of Benetton, like, oh, they take such great pictures because it's like one black child, one you know Asian American uh, adult. And the thing about it is that when we are sitting on the pews with each other, we have not talked about the major complexities of racism and the construct of race. Our relationships will be about will be paper thin. And so I wanted to make sure that from the get go, we recognize that the complexities of race also begin to create complexities in relationship. If we couldn't build up those muscles, what would happen is that there would either, there'd be a lot of mistrust, which makes a a lot of sense. Race is always on the table is kind of our honesty examination guiding principle. We can't pretend that some things are not affected by race in this country. So we we tell people at at the Southeast Raleigh table, no matter who you are, you got to learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because at some point in time, everyone's going to be uncomfortable. If I talk about white privilege, you're going to be uncomfortable. It's going to activate shame in some people. If I talk about internalized racism in folks of color, it's going to activate some shame or resistance. Everybody's going to be uncomfortable at some point in time. And the beauty of church is that we believe in grace. We believe in redemption. We believe that we don't have to live in shame, that there's a way to move out of it. And I think when people start to realize like, Ooh, that hurt for a little second. That didn't tickle. But look, I got to the other side. I mean, it helps people to realize what real freedom looks like. And I think where the world also like traps us is making us think that the discomfort will last forever, which is why some people are not willing to do the work. Because as soon as they recoil, they're told it's okay. Yeah, don't ever do anything that's going to make you feel uncomfortable. And we would say, no, you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and, and, you you you'll make it to the you'll make it to the other side. Yeah, I think that's just such a helpful container to kind of build for that discomfort. Just to say, look, this is always on the table, and it's going to show up again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you want to talk about me feeling shame? So much of my ministry 
was making people feel comfortable. And then I woke up one day and I was like, I can't do it anymore. I can't code switch anymore. I can't, I can't be the, the black everyone loves to love. I just can't do it. I mean, I, I really literally had like a, like a moment in myself. It was leading up to my 40th birthday. I was like, I just can't, I cannot. I know I get applauded for like shape shifting. I just can't, it was killing me. It was, it was cultural suicide. It was killing me. But I started to realize too, me shape-shifting was actually keeping some people from being their best selves. I was like, Mm-mm. like, this is not me being a good pastor. This is actually me allowing some folks to not be great humans. We will not do this anymore. Jesus did not die for me to be, do all this foolery <laughs> and for you to be doing foolery, microaggressing every five seconds. Like we need to talk about this in regard to like, I need people to show up for themselves a little bit better because Jesus did not die for foolery. Jesus died to redeem us. So um, when I say when we put racists always on the table, I, you know, if someone wants to send me an email saying, oh God, I don't want you. Like, why do we keep talking about this? Then I'm like, Ooh, you kind of know, you know, there's no bait and switch. I think it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful way of just saying this, this table was set for us and we're not going to be able to set a different one until we deal with this one. Thanks for listening. You can find more information about the Common Good Collective at commongood.cc. Be sure to check out the link for Reverend Yeboah's address in the show notes, as well as everyone's bios. The Common Good is hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Turlinchamp, and produced by the amazing Joey Taylor with music from Jeff Gorman.